Hello, I'm Terrence McNally. Welcome to Free Forum, a world that just might work. And I'm going to be speaking today with Joanna Schwartz. She's a professor of law at UCLA who challenges law enforcement's untouchability, if you will, uh, when uh, they uh, might be guilty of misconduct and specifically overuse of the claim of qualified immunity. Uh, this all happens in her book, Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable. And you can learn more about uh, Joanna's work at joannaschwartz.net. J-O-A-N-N-A-S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z, uh, Joanna Schwartz, all one word, dot net. On Freeform, we explore the lives, the work, the ideas of individuals that I suspect have pieces of the puzzle of a world that just might work. We look at politics, economics, environment, science, health, culture, law, all based on the fact that I believe we can do better and I want to find out how. The show streams weekly on the Progressive Voices Network on TuneIn.com and podcasts are available anytime, anywhere on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, most major podcast sites, and at my site, TerrenceMcNally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y.net. As I was preparing for the show, it occurred to me that though my aim is to envision a world that just might work, as I say, on the way there, I spend a lot of time learning how and why things are even worse than I thought. So just in the recent past, in the last few uh, podcasts, I learned from Jeff Goodell, the author of The Heat Will Kill You First, that climate change is not like smog. If and when we finally do everything right, things won't go back to the way they were. It's highly likely that the heat, droughts, wildfires, and floods are here to stay. Things that I knew were suspect or even dangerous, when I dig into them, often reveal ways in which our legal system is actually set up to allow or promote such bad behavior. I've long been suspect of private equity, for example. I assume there are exceptions, but I associate it with the worst cutthroat capitalism, destroying companies, communities, individual lives. And then I learned from Brendan Ballou, author of Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America, that they have successfully manipulated the legal system to escape accountability for the consequences of their actions, hiding behind the claim that they advise investors they do not control companies. From Dan Ziblatt, co-author of Tyranny of the Minority, I learned a greater appreciation of the flaws of the Constitution currently being exploited to impose minority rule by the Republican Party and the right, and that the founders of one of the first democracies were driven actually by a fear of the people, of mob rule, of the tyranny of the majority. So I'm prepared to learn some similar things today about police misconduct and accountability from Joanna Schwartz. She begins shielded with a quote from James Baldwin, ignorance allied with power is the most ferocious enemy justice can have. And she declares her ambitions for the book to be not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. So I know I'm gonna learn more <laughs> bad news about why things are the way they are. So to frame the conversation, I'm interested first in the macro, like national numbers perhaps. How big a problem is the current state of police accountability? And are we doing better since the death of George Floyd and the protests of 2020? Joanna Schwartz writes, 
Myths about the dangers of making it too easy to sue police have made a mess of our system. We need a shared understanding of why officers must be held accountable for their actions and a commitment to end senseless legal protections that embolden police and leave victims without a meaningful remedy. And I have spent much of my academic career empirically examining justifications for qualified immunity doctrine and have found each to be overblown and sometimes just plain false. It's past time to get the facts straight about what qualified immunity is, what it does, and what would happen if it were eliminated. So, we'll look into how big a problem is qualified immunity. How often is it claimed? How effective is it? What impact does it have on victims and their families and on law enforcement? So that's, we'll set the big picture. And then I want Joanna to share stories. She promises in the introduction to Shielded, readers will learn the stories of people whose children were killed, even though they pose no threat. People who themselves were shot and nearly lost their lives without justification, who were searched and humiliated without cause, who were raped by officers sworn to protect and serve, each of whom has been told by our courts and elected officials that they must shoulder the cost of the violence they suffered themselves with no recourse from the officers or from the governments that signed their paychecks and gave them their badges and guns. In individual cases where qualified immunity has been claimed and granted, what impact does it have on justice, accountability, and closure for the victims of police misconduct? And finally, what can be done, what should we hope for, and how can we help? Joanna Schwartz is a professor of law at UCLA where she teaches civil procedure and courses on police accountability and public interest lawyering. Her writing, commentary, and research about police misconduct, qualified immunity, indemnification, and local government budgeting have been featured in the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Forbes, NPR, Network News, CNN, NPR. She's a graduate of Brown University and Yale Law School, and her first book, released early this year, is Shielded, how the police became untouchable. Welcome, Joanna Schwartz, to Free Forum, a world that just might work. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's uh, wonderful to be on with you. Great, and let me tell listeners we are recording uh, this conversation Monday, October twenty third. First of all, Joanna, I'd like listeners to get a feel for the people behind the work and the ideas we talk about. So, can you tell us, in your words, briefly? A bit about how you see your path to the work you do these days um, and to the life you've led. You, and feel free to go back. It might be a childhood inspiration, a mentor, a turning point, those sorts of things. Hmm. Well, I uh, first decided to go to law school um, after working at an alternative to prison program um, in the Bronx in New York City. Uh, where I, my job was as a court representative to interview a bunch of people who had been charged with their first felonies, usually first-time drug offenses. They were usually teenagers, and uh, advocate for them before the judge and the prosecutor to get released from jail, to be able to live back at home, go to our program, and and hopefully end up with a sealed record at the end. And the experience of being in that courthouse every day, uh, day in and day out, cemented my interest in going to law school. It also really cemented my interest in criminal justice reform and mm -hmm. um, seeing all of those people, uh, you know, mostly black and brown, coming through the courthouse every day. Um, when I went to law school, I thought I was gonna be a public defender, but I started doing work, civil rights work, 
I represented a bunch of several different women who had been raped by corrections officers in a federal prison in Connecticut. And, and that experience got me thinking about the criminal justice system, not from the criminal perspective, but from the civil rights perspective. And, and I really became passionate about uh, that side of the work, representing people whose rights had been violated. And that's what I ended up doing after law school. I worked at a small civil rights firm in New York City. And while I was doing that work, a lot of the questions that end up informing this book came to mind about what effect these lawsuits were actually having, why it was so hard to bring these claims and win, and what effect they were having on officers and departments when they were successful. So when I got to UCLA um, and started uh, my work as a professor, I really spent my time trying to empirically answer the questions that plagued me as a young uh, lawyer bringing these cases. And it's really driven my work ever since. I've uh, wanted to understand why uh, it is so difficult to bring these cases. And, and ultimately, um, as I explain in Shielded, I think that there is uh, a series of claims, myths, concerns uh, about the dangers of too much justice in these cases that have been used by courts and by legislators to create multiple overlapping barriers to relief that make it very difficult even for people with um, very legitimate claims who've suffered very serious harms to get the relief that I believe they deserve. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, let, me, let me ask one question right at sort of in the middle of, of, of that, which is what drew you or how did you make the decision to, uh, to really embed yourself in extensive statistical and other research that you've done over the years to test the validity of, of claims for the need for qualified immunity. Um, for example, this is not everyday legal scholarship, is it? <laughs> uh, it is It is not what um, a lot of people who do legal, legal scholarship spend their time doing. I mean, I suppose there, there are a couple of answers to that question. One is that that was what interested me. That's uh -huh. what I wanted to understand. Um, I, as, as one example I, um, that I talk about in the book, I had a client who um, had brought a claim against an officer and against the department. Um, the officer had beaten him up several times. He was clearly a bad Apple officer. The department was trying to fire him. And the department, or excuse me, I should say the officer offered him a uh, healthy six-figure settlement. And my client wanted to know where the money was supposed to be coming from to, to satisfy this settlement. My assumption was that it, it couldn't be coming from the department because the department was trying to fire him. But when my uh, when we when we dug down and, and demanded that information, really at the behest of, of our client, we learned that it was the police department that was going to pay this six figure settlement on behalf of an officer they were trying to fire who had clearly engaged in egregious wrongdoing. So that's a question that that stuck with me. I couldn't. I couldn't get to the answer while I was busy litigating his case, right. but when I had the time to think about it, I, I really wanted to know the answer to the question. D why, why would this uh, department have paid in this case, and how frequent was it that departments did pay? on behalf of their officers. And so it was truly, a, it was, my goal was not to uh, do something unique and different, you know, as compared to my law school uh, professor colleagues, but it was really to answer questions that I found fascinating. And because I have 
experience as a litigator. I have experience doing discovery and taking depositions and interviewing people and doing public records requests. The kind of skills that I needed to get to the bottom of the questions that I wanted to ask were, were actually uh, skills that I had, had developed during my time in practice. Very good. Very good. And so now let me shift just a second here to say any response to my introduction, any, anything in there that's off or, you know, just anything? No, I loved it. And, and I really appreciate the wide lens that you offered uh, in the introduction, thinking about, first of all, the idea that, that to come to solutions, you need to grapple with what the problems are and that the problems are often much more profound than you, than you might uh, expect. Um, I think that that's a very important frame because, and that is the frame of, of Shielded as well. I, I do think that um, it's in some ways easier to come up with solutions when you don't truly grapple with what the problems oh, are God, and, yes. and a nuanced, a nuanced understanding of what the problems are is, has got to be the first step. I, I also really like the fact that you were sort of cross substantive in the introduction. This is an, an issue. This book is really, it's just about a sliver of, oh, yeah. um, a, a sliver of an issue. And in fact, it's only a sliver of the policing issues, um, related to accountability because, there are. I, I could have written a book about boy. What would what would uh, what would a better functioning criminal justice system or criminal system work to 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 arrest and and imprison officers? Or what would a better internal affairs system? How would that work? Where police departments were doing a better job of policing their own. Instead, I really just focus on one sliver. What does our civil justice system look like? How do people get justice in the courts? through seeking money or court-ordered reforms when their rights have been violated. And as you point out, these are questions not only that you know you face with policing, but with the environment and with corporate power and, and all of these other areas as well. Exactly. No, it was, you know, it, it's as I'm preparing for something, you know, there's these thoughts running around in my brain and I'm going, this just keeps happening where <laughs> I think something is a problem and I want it. And then I find out that there's like a deeply embedded systemic reason that the problem seems so challenging or that the effects mm -hmm. seem so uh, immense that the public uh, just is unaware of and that the normal, I mean, and I was going to say the normal, you know, media dealing with these issues never really uh, reveals. But I, I, obviously uh read and research much more than just the mainstream you know in other words th sure. this is stuff that i'm and and in in <laughs> the cases i i mentioned and in 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 the case of this book and and you know all too often it turns out when you scratch below the surface you find out that that there are it, it, as i point out and as your book is one of the examples of that the legal system has somehow been twisted to actually, as I say, either condone or promote what what seems like bad behavior, and certainly not, if you will, well-being. Yeah, I, I I agree absolutely, and <laughs> and we will we will get into the substance yeah. of the book. Um, but uh, you know, I think you, you mentioned in the introduction a, a real. Uh, you mentioned in your introduction a, a great deal about qualified immunity, but but part of my goal in tell in describing uh, or in telling 
the, the story of this book and, and writing this book is to make clear that qualified immunity is only the tip of the iceberg. And right. there are many, many other barriers to relief as well. And this is, I think this is an example exactly of what you were just saying, that even when you look at um, more in-depth media, more in-depth than you know Twitter, Twitter uh, or other kinds of social media, there still is a focus very primarily predominantly on qualified immunity um but there's there's many other barriers to relief right uh, now i noticed as well it seemed to me that when i looked at uh articles you'd written lately or attention that had been paid to the book that it seems that that the focus does seem to be on qualified <laughs> immunity in other words there there would be people that would say oh this is the qualified immunity book so yeah. Um, it's a bit of a self-fulfilling, you know, yes. self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Because I, I keep trying to say it's not just about <laughs> right. qualified immunity, guys. And they say, well, yes, but tell us more about qualified <laughs> immunity, and which I, I'm happy to do. But um, there is a lot more involved. Right. And I will end up doing the same damn thing. Um, but, <laughs> but for right now, <laughs> uh, let me ask you a couple of questions. Um, I, I said that your am. Ambition. Uh, I, I, I quoted you on your ambition for the book, but if you want to uh, um, enlarge on that at all, um, and because my guess is that one uh, begins a book, and I, 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 let me throw in one other question. A question I often ask is, was there a moment you knew you had to write this? Was a particular itch that you just had to scratch? Was there a thing when it was, damn it, I guess I've got to do it? Was there that moment? Yeah, and it is a good question to to answer the broader question that you were posing. Um, you know, I've I've done a lot of legal research, writing writing articles. You know, more than a dozen articles um, in the ten plus years that I've been a law professor um, that offer you know with hundreds of footnotes the findings yeah, yeah, of yeah. the various studies that I have that I have uh, done. But for those who don't like to read law review articles for fun on the weekends, uh, they can be a little bit, um, you know, frightening to to look at. Um, but I've also done a lot of, of popular press and, and talking with, with reporters and, and the like. Um, but after George Floyd's murder and there was all of this focus and attention on qualified immunity yeah. and on police accountability and barriers to relief. I was getting a ton of calls about qualified immunity for sure, but also about other areas of my research. Who pays when these cases are successful? What impact does it have on police department's budgets? Uh, you know, when are local governments held responsible? Right. In other words, and, once, once the conversation becomes about funding or defunding or changing funding of police, then suddenly people say, well, that's something I know nothing about. How are they funded and what would what would changes in funding mean? That sort of thing. And so, yeah. Exactly. And that was the so in the in the midst of those conversations, I thought, boy, I should be writing a book <laughs> instead of responding to all of these reporters' ah. calls all the way. I mean, of course I still do that, but what I wanted to do was explain in it for a lay audience. Um, who doesn't want to read those law review articles, what these various barriers to relief are, qualified immunity among them, but to make sure that people understand it's not just qualified immunity, right. it's this web of different protections. That was one main goal. And the second main goal 
was to share my research and the research of other scholars who have tested the justifications for these many barriers to explain that they don't bear out, <laughs> that, right. that the, the reasons that we have all these barriers are uh, myths and concerns that really bear minimal relationship to reality. Yeah, so that, that's so a, those, those are the paired goals. Yeah, that second one, that, 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 the, the fact that you finally do the research, you look at the real numbers, and, and, and these Supreme Court decisions are driven by myths. And the actions of governments and police departments and prosecutors are driven by myths. It's, it's. I mean, I, I, you know, it's. It, 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 at this point, it's not surprising, but it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's saddening and disheartening, mm -hmm. um, especially in terms of the Supreme Court. I have a, a nephew who is clerking for a federal judge, and and will mm. next year, the year after, clerk for a Supreme Court judge. And he, mm. I asked him, "What is your job?" And he said, "My job is reading." You know, and writing, and I, I, you know, I read all day long, and you know, and then I write drafts, and and that that the reading of the Supreme Court justices would not have yielded them the information that you uh, put in this book for the public is, as I said, disheartening. So, um, well, of course, I hope that that they read the book, and, yeah. your, and your nephew does as well. So That's then, right. the, the information is now there, and I will say. There are, you know, there are a lot of federal judges who have cited my research and, and others' research about what is actually happening on the ground as they question doctrines like qualified immunity. Ah. Why do we have this? So it is, it is, it is getting into the um, the conversation. Where I, it needs, I don't know where it needs to be. Yes. Yeah, I don't. It hasn't. I don't know if it will change votes or, or to the extent to which it has changed votes. But I do hope it changes at least the baseline understanding of how there, yeah, these cases. Yeah, right. Function. People still may vote based on something other than the facts, <laughs> and maybe right. even exactly. other than the myth. Um, so, yeah. the the question that uh, that is upstream of anything we say about qualified immunity is, how would you describe or assess the state of law enforcement accountability? in the U.S. today, and are things getting better since George Floyd, and if so, how? Yeah, it's a great question, and when you when you first asked it in the, uh, or posed it in the introduction, I, I smiled uh, to myself because the, the first sort of baseline answer um, is going to be an unsatisfying one, which is that we don't really know. Um, hmm. And there's there's a there's an overarching problem, which is that we don't have great data about uh, how often police violate people's rights. We we have the most basic information that we have. Um, which concerns how often police kill people, right. is data that's not collected by the federal government, that they've been essentially incapable of collecting themselves. It's, it's data collected by The Guardian and The Washington Post. Um, and that has found that the number of killings uh, by police is numbers over 1,000, and that, and that the numbers have stayed relatively the same or have gone up well, since what's the, the what's data. It, oh, uh, Joanna, what's the time period for that 1,000? The well, the, the the I believe the first uh, year of collection was 2014. Uh huh. 
So it's a thousand so since 2014 in the U.S. A thousand each year. Each there more we than go. A That's what I was asking each for. Year. Yeah. Yes, more than a thousand each year. Um, of course, we don't know what the numbers were. You know, in the 90s, 80s, mm. 50s, 40s. I'm guessing they were higher. So in the in the, in the scheme of things, um, the numbers may well have gone down over the decades, but they haven't gone down. Um, you know, over the past 10 years, and we don't have other data that is um, reliable, although, although again, journalists are, are working to start collecting the data of how many times people believe that their rights have been violated other ways, that non-fatal excessive force have been used against them or they've been wrongfully searched or detained and the like. So there's a, there's a lot we don't know. What I can tell you is, as far as accountability is concerned, there's three sort of main ways in which people can get some form of accountability. Um, one is through a criminal prosecution. Available evidence is that those criminal prosecutions of officers are, are vanishingly rare. Uh, something like 2% of officers who have killed people uh, have any charges uh, against them. And then a fewer, around a third of those are convicted of anything. Um, the numbers are much smaller, although we don't have those exact numbers for non-fatal force or other kinds of violations that don't involve the use of force. Um, and internal affairs investigations are another path. That would be police departments investigating, disciplining, firing officers. Um, these are also uh, rare. Um, and in part, this is because of protections um, that are part of state law, part of union um, agreements with local um, departments mm -hmm. that you know limit how investigations are run and then often create these arbitration um, appeals of any findings of discipline. So so then we're left with with lawsuits. And um, there is some data the federal government has collected based on surveys that suggest that fewer than 1% of people who believe that their rights have, by, have been violated ever file a lawsuit. Um, so uh, that is, you know, we, again, we, this is based on um, uh, survey data. We don't know whether people who believe that their rights have been violated have actually had their rights violated or would, or right. would have found that right. they had their rights violated. But fair to say there's a lot of people out there who believe they have been mistreated, um, but never never bring a case at all. Yeah, and, and when you have a number like 1%, if it's off by 2 or 3%. <laughs> <laughs> it's still pretty darn low. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, let me ask one question, because otherwise I will, we, I will never get back to it. And it's kind of jumping <laughs> away for a second. But has the Biden administration or the Biden Justice Department made any moves in the right direction in terms of police accountability on a federal level? Yes. And I realize when you ask that question, I, I, didn't, I didn't answer the, the second part of the question that you posed, which was, have things gotten better? We'll since. get to that in a second. George Floyd. Okay. Well, there's a couple things that the Biden administration has has done. Um, one thing that it has done is um, issue an executive order that essentially um, did the parts of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act that failed in Congress, uh, sort of moved forward uh, through executive order some of the things mm -hmm. that um, it could. So that's 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 one 
one thing. Um, it's very hard for the president to act without Congress um, on the yeah. reform. But that was that was that was one important move. So whatever the they could, that, whatever he could do by executive order, he did. But yeah. yeah. The other thing that he's done, and time will just simply tell what impact this has, but is on judicial appointments. And he has, he has appointed uh, and made a priority of appointing people who have experience as public defenders, people who have experience as civil rights attorneys, people who are um, excellent uh, lawyers and I, I have every expectation will be um, responsible um, jurists, but who are more likely to see the world um, in a way that is consistent with that of a plaintiff in a civil rights case, more, more likely to understand the realities of litigating these cases and those challenges that I talk about in the book than judges whose sole background is as a prosecutor or a sure. corporate attorney. And so I do think that that may well have a significant impact on um, civil rights litigation moving forward. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, it's one of those, again, sort of upstream uh, solutions. Uh, you put yes. different people with different worldviews and different perspectives uh, in the seat and, and maybe, you know, a year from now, three years from now, a case a year from, you know, those sorts of things are changes. Th that's good. Okay. Absolutely. So, so have things gotten better since <laughs> uh, George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests? So I think that the, the Black Lives Matter protests, the protests following the murder of George Floyd have had a tremendous impact. I think that there's been a lot of conversation about backlash surrounding defund the police and mm -hmm that uh, you know, a lot of sort of criticism of, of the protests and the efforts made um, following uh, George Floyd's murder. And it, putting aside those, those critiques, I think that what I would, would say, wholly apart from, from whether defund was the right language all to right. use or, or all, all of that, I think that BLM and the protests following George Floyd's murder put attention on this issue that had not been there before, I think made uh, more people sort of a, a tipping point uh, about racism in policing and racially disparate policing. Um, there were hundreds of police departments following the murder of George Floyd who um, created, implemented a, a variety of different um, protections like ending chokeholds, um, and no-knock raids um, that I think are are important. Do they do they completely transform policing? No, but important steps um, in the right direction. And and they were also inspired legislators around the country to um, try to make um, changes in laws. Um, some of which have been more successful than others, but I think um, were important changes. And and I will say sort of again the, on the upstream point, I think more people than ever are um, focused on civil rights issues. More lawyers coming out of law schools are interested in bringing these cases um, and. Um, and so I do think that there is a way in which um, this will impact um, th this this uprising in the in the summer of 2020 will have long effects um, moving forward. Yeah, it sounds like things that should have been uh, and, 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 and that there that that could have been even implemented or passed uh, prior to that. But just, you know, just things go on. Status quo uh, sort of reigns. Um, that this bump to the system 
has at least released a lot of that. Yes, yeah. I agree. So, I agree. Um, again, before we wade into qualified immunity, can you <laughs> briefly talk about some of the other obstacles? And I'm going to read something that you wrote, and then you decide how you want to flesh it out, okay? All right. Decisions sure. by the Supreme Court have erected barriers at every stage of the litigation process. Make it difficult to find an experienced civil rights lawyer. Make it difficult to plead a plausible complaint. Difficult to prove a constitutional violation. Difficult to defeat qualified immunity. Difficult to hold local governments liable for the acts of their efforts. And difficult to obtain injunctive release. And there's a point, I think it's in the better way, your final chapter, where you sort of talk about reforms, where you have a series of even when paragraphs, if you know mm -hmm. what I mean. Mm -hmm. You know, even when a plaintiff can this, even when it's, it's the hoops before you ever get to qualified immunity or the hoops that surround qualified immunity. So could you, uh, let me just tell people first and then take on that <laughs> question, which is what, are, what, it, what's the, what is all of that? This is Free Forum, a world that just might work. I'm Terrence McNally. I'm speaking with Joanna Schwartz, professor of law at UCLA, who challenges uh, uh, law enforcement accountability, uh, including the uh, overuse of the claim of qualified immunity in her book, Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable. And you can learn more about her work at joannaschwartz.net. Okay. Well, I appreciate that you asked the question and then you, you, you know, you had all that, that other, those other things to say. So I had a moment to, uh, yeah. to think about what my answer should be. I really appreciate that. I think that, that the portion of the book that you read from the um, introduction does a very nice job of setting out uh, my, my main point here, that, that qualified immunity is just one piece of the puzzle. And as you said, uh, you need to find a lawyer, file a complaint, get past the, prove a constitutional violation, um, and do all of those things before you even get to qualified immunity. I thought that I would, would explain that um, by referencing or describing one of the cases that I talk about in the excellent, book. Excellent, excellent. Um, good. So uh, so as I, as I talk about in the book, um, there was an August night in 2016, and a woman named Vicki Timpa got a phone call that no one, no one could ever expect or want. And it was a phone call from her ex-husband saying that her son, Tony, had died. And Tony was a 32-year-old executive, white guy, made a quarter of a million dollars a year, living in Dallas. And um, Vicki couldn't imagine how, how her son had died. Um, she called the Dallas Police Department several times. She learned that he had died in police custody, but they wouldn't give her a straight story about what had happened. Um, one said that she that he died outside his car. One said that uh, he had had a heart attack in a restaurant. She, she had no, no understanding of what had happened. But um, when the family viewed the body in the morgue, they saw that he had grass in his nose. Mm. And so how did that happen? So she started fighting for information. And Dallas, and under state law, wasn't obligated to give her any information because, because the case was under investigation. So she had no information about what had happened. She just knew that he had died. She went to try to find a lawyer to bring a lawsuit. And um, 
she she was lucky to find a man named Jeff Henley who um, practices in Dallas, does some civil rights work, but he he wouldn't necessarily have brought this case. He knew these cases were very difficult to bring. Um, many uh, people with civil rights violations lose because juries are, are unsympathetic. Mm. But um, he was sympathetic to her. Um, they and, and in a in a request for information from Dallas, they had learned that the Dallas Police Department had body camera video of what mm. had happened. So based on how sympathetic she was and the existence of body camera video, he decided to take the risk. And as a side note, many other people uh, might not have taken that risk. And this is part of the reason it can be very difficult to find a lawyer. Um, when uh, they filed their lawsuit, they could only file it against the city of Dallas because they didn't know the names of the officers who brought mm -hmm. the case or who had killed, who had been there when her son died. So they named what, what you refer to as John Doe officers. And she had no details about what had happened to her son because the city of Dallas was taping the body camera videos and other information that they had. After filing the complaint, the city of Dallas moved to dismiss it. And they moved to dismiss it based on Supreme Court ruling that says that in order to get to discovery, to be able to demand information from the other side, you have to plead what's called a plausible complaint, which the Supreme Court has said it needs to have enough facts that it shows a basis for relief. Well, Vicki Timpa didn't have that information because it was in the possession of the Dallas Police Department. Right. In other words, it, over. it sounds like they're saying to get this information, you need to have this information. Correct. That's precisely what they're saying. And not only were they saying that, they had the information. Right. I don't know what would have happened if the judge ultimately had to decide that case. But Jeff Henley, her lawyer, brought a separate lawsuit against the Dallas Police Department demanding this information through a public records request. Okay. And ultimately, while the motion to dismiss the lawsuit was pending, he was able to negotiate a settlement, was able to get those records, and was able to find out what had finally happened to Tony. And again, another side note, another lawyer would not necessarily have put in the extra investment to bring that separate lawsuit. But Jeff Henley did. Yeah, let me let me just that, jump in for another yeah, side note. Yeah, I don't, I, don't lose yeah. track. You know your story, so I you won't, won't lose track. I won't. But don't worry. What you basically said is that while someone who had actually been wronged could not get this information, Freedom of Information Act, which doesn't have anything necessarily to do with a victim or a call, right, was able to. Mm -hmm. And 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 you realize again just how how maddening that is. <laughs> that, that a journalist, yeah. had they made just a freedom of information, can get information, but someone oh. who actually needs it can't. Well, I will say the um, there was also a journalist who was trying to get this information. The journalist for the Dallas Morning News ended up fighting for three years ah. to get it released to the public. So uh, this was it, it is. It is a bit bizarre that a person bringing a lawsuit can't get this information through the through the case itself and has to bring a second case. Yeah. But it was it was actually even more difficult for the journalist uh, oh, okay. to get this information. They had to fight for much much longer. So uh, you know, props to that to the journalist who yeah. who did that fighting. Anyway, um, 
So they ultimately did get this video. And right. what the video showed and how they amended the complaint to add in this video mm -hmm. was essentially that Tony Timpa had been having a mental health crisis. He called the police himself oh. asking for assistance. And when the officers came, they zip tied his feet, they handcuffed him, and, and two officers, one particularly, pressed his knees against Tony Timpa's neck and back for 14 minutes until he died. Oh and not only, not only did they press their hands, their, their weight, his, his, their body weight against him, but after Tony was clearly dying, and you can see in the video when he is not resisting, not moving, making gurgling sounds, <gasps> they, they joke like he is a boy who is fallen asleep and doesn't want to go to school. And they say, get up, Tony. We're going to make you Rudy Tooty Fruity Waffles. We got your shoes downstairs. Oh, my God. And when the EMT finally get him, the, the officer who has put his foot on his neck and back for all of this time says, boy, I hope I didn't kill him. Everyone's laughing. And less than half an hour before he, uh, before after, less than half an hour after he had called for help, he was dead. So this is what happened to Tony Timpa. Yeah. This is the information that the Dallas Police Department was hiding. Was hiding behind that video. Over. And let, let me just say, I just, I, I'm just going to share one thought that comes up as you're describing that. When yeah. someone can make those Rudy Tooty get up Tony jokes, it feels to me like they've done this before. If you know what mm. I mean. You know what I mean? I just have that as, a, as a, I, I've been a screenwriter and just thinking of you don't just come up with that at the first time you've killed somebody, you know, or you've hurt someone or you've abused someone. I just go on. But and I don't know whether that's true. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, but whether whatever had happened before, what I can tell you is that those officers were not disciplined. Uh, there was a disciplinary hearing and the disciplinary officer said the hearing officer said, if you uh, basically keep doing what you're doing besides this, <laughs> besides this event, I see a bright future for oh you my all. God. So there was no meaningful discipline for these officers in this case. And um, uh, so, so now so now that she and her lawyer have the, the, the kind of a sense of the reality of what happened, what happens next? Well, they file their lawsuit. They amend their lawsuit to include this additional information. There's no longer any basis to dismiss it. So they get into discovery. They, they, they do um, discovery in the case. And then six weeks after George Floyd was murdered in much the same way, a district court judge granted the officers qualified immunity. So this is this is partially why I say it's there's a lot to criticize about qualified immunity, but it's not just qualified immunity because think of all of the steps that we have or that the that the that the Tempest had to to get past in order to get to this place. But the case was dismissed on qualified immunity grounds. And okay. what that means is that even assuming there was a constitutional violation. Courts are allowed to grant officers qualified immunity if the law was not clearly established. And the way in which the Supreme Court has interpreted clearly established law, it means that there has to be a prior court decision with nearly identical facts. And, and flesh, flesh that identical out. identical conduct yes. unconstitutional. I was going to say, yeah, so, please flesh out how, how extreme 
that nearly identical is so people get the true import. Sure. Well, there's and there's any number of cases that have um, made the news in which uh, the grants of qualified immunity uh, have seemed outrageous. Mm -hmm. One example to, to, to offer is a case brought by a man named Alexander Baxter. Mm -hmm. Alexander Baxter had burgled a home. Uh, the police were called. He sat down in surrender and raised his hands in the air. And the police nevertheless released a dog on him who attacked him, bit him under the arm uh, that he had raised, and he was uh, severely injured um, and needed medical treatment um, from the jail after he was arrested uh, for over a month. When he brought a lawsuit, the case was uh, dismissed on qualified immunity grounds. That same court had ruled that it was unconstitutional to release a police dog on a person who had surrendered by lying down. And what the Court of Appeals said was that there was distinction enough between the facts of a case where a person had surrendered by lying down and, that, and a case where a person had surrendered by sitting with their hands in the air that the law was not clearly established. Yeah, now I, this my is just guess one is, example. Yeah, of my guess is that someone who's listening and hears that just goes, "Come on, that's just crazy." But it happens over and over again throughout. Because because you have several throughout one more just to sort of go. You think that's crazy here? Sure. Well, here's another example: a case called Jessup versus City of Fresno, which is a case where uh, Fresno police were investigating. Um, a potential uh, gambling violation. Um, someone had gambling machines in, you know, laundromats and things like that after a, a law um, had ruled those illegal. Mm -hmm. And the police did a search of the residence and found, uh, recorded $50,000 uh, that they had recovered, but pocketed another quarter of a million in rare coins and uh, money and never returned that. When the person sued, uh, the officers were granted qualified immunity because there wasn't a prior court decision that had said it was unconstitutional to seize uh, and keep, essentially to steal um, evidence recovered during a search. So those officers were also let off the hook. Right, in other words, if they stole that money in any other circumstance, it would be pretty clear that's a violation, right? I mean, if they weren't police, if you just stole and, and it was clear that you had stolen $225,000 in rare coins. but They would be in prison, but yes. But because they're police, it must be so, um, so taken for granted, this distinction, you know, that it's like, but to someone who's just listening, why is it different? Well, the justification that the Supreme Court has offered for qualified immunity uh, has shifted over time. But, but in the very beginning, when the doctrine was first created by the Supreme Court in 1967, they talked about the importance of giving officers a little bit of breathing room, getting, giving them some discretion so that they weren't going to be threatened with the possibility of dereliction of duty if they didn't do their job and being sued if they, if they did do their job. Mm -hmm. So giving them a little, extra, a little extra breathing room outside the bounds of the Constitution. But what it, at that time, when, when, the, when the Supreme Court created qualified immunity, they called it a good faith immunity. That's so right. the idea was it was this protection if officers acting in good faith 
stepped over the line um, and the, you know, and the line was not clear. But the court has increasingly strengthened what the legal protection is. It no longer turns on whether officers acted in good faith. They can act in bad faith, like the officers in Fresno who stole a quarter right, of a million right. dollars. It's tough to, tough to call that good faith, right? <laughs> it didn't just fall into their pockets. So <laughs> and they, and they that didn't is, yeah, this is, so even when officers have acted in bad faith, they're protected. So, and they're protected so long as they have the good fortune to have violated someone's rights in a way that is not precisely the way that it uh, that that a prior courts court has held unconstitutional. So this protection that was first about giving officers breathing room and really unsettled um, new constitutional um, areas uh, when they've acted in good faith has now turned into really a a sort of funhouse mirror version of itself. That's right. Where it's officers acting in bad faith even when the conduct that they've done is is obviously wrong, so long as there's not a prior court case that has said precisely that kind of force used, for example, um, is unconstitutional. Right. So you, you've pointed out, and I, and I hope people got that, two or three uh, different instances where it seems this is this is the same crime, but it's not exactly the same crime. Okay, so... And, and and you've also pointed out that a rid, I had a question here, which was, you know, is this one of those cases where something uh, that was done for the best of intentions, you know, kind of got distorted? And there's some sense that's true. The breathing room, the good faith. But step by step, and you, you cite these steps, the Supreme Court has fattened and enlarged and loosened those boundaries to where now you can title the book Untouchable. Um, <laughs> what, what, um, what I don't want to get out of this conversation without uh, citing is some of the Supreme Court's myths and the facts you've discovered that prove those myths are false. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, to <laughs> to there are there are so many of them, but but to to give you um, just just a, a two, sense of it, uh, a flavor of it, yeah. <laughs> a sense of it, you know. Current debates around qualified immunity repeatedly say that without qualified immunity's protections, officers will be bankrupted for good faith mistakes they make in a split second. And this is this is um, in in somewhat less uh, fervent tones the kind of uh, justifications that the Supreme Court has also made for expanding the doctrine. But when I looked at uh, police departments around the country. I, I got records from 81 law enforcement agencies across the country over a six-year period asking how often did officers contribute to settlements and judgments entered against them. I found only two of the 81 departments where there had been any contribution by an officer. The amount contributed was an average of somewhere around $4,000, not the makings of a bankruptcy petition. And that in the other jurisdictions, it was more likely that an officer would be struck by lightning than that they would have to contribute to a settlement or judgment during the course of their career. Right. So I'm just going to just just rephrase just so people get it. So the myth that supporters and the Supreme Court have said is you know, if, if they're liable for all these things, they'll be bankrupt. Turns out, as you said, two 
out of 81 departments do police officers have to pay any of it. In other cases, the police department or the uh, government ends up picking up the bill. And, and that even when they are charged, and oh, one other thing I want to say is we're not necessarily talking about death here. It isn't that they, no. they get 5,000 bucks for, 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 for murder, but it's any kind of misconduct. But, but still, the, the point is that, as you point out, not bankruptable. Go ahead. No, and, and absolutely. And, and the reason for those financial protections is not qualified immunity. The, 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 this is an important point as well, that the reasons that officers aren't paying anything in these cases is because there are state and local what are called indemnification agreements. They're, they're agreements that when an officer is sued, a lawyer will be given to them and any settlement or judgment will be paid from the city's coffers. So it's a protection that the Supreme Court basically ignores in its cases and that and that defenders of qualified immunity basically ignore. What you're but saying just, is it, is they would be covered <laughs> without qualified immunity. This this whole Correct. notion that it's a financial a potential financial hardship to actually have to pay for their mistakes um, is not even true. Uh, you know, way before qualified immunity. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and the other side of the other part of that of that myth that officers are going to be held liable or found to have violated the Constitution when they make split second mistakes in good faith uh, ignores the way in which the Supreme Court's constitutional cases play out. So, you know, under the Supreme Court's rulings, um, the Fourth Amendment protection against unreasonable searches and seizures is the reasonableness is viewed from the perspective of an officer. So an, a person can be assaulted, arrested, shot, or even killed and have done nothing wrong, but the officer may not have violated their constitutional rights if they acted reasonably. And the court has said reasonably can be mistakenly. Split-second decisions are already protected by the Constitution. Aha. Uh -huh. So another justification for qualified immunity that is covered without qualified immunity. And, th and exactly. th that's basically, a, there's a litany of their, their, their justifications and the fact that when you do real-world research, um, they turn out to be either uh, false or unnecessary. Okay. Correct. Um, we've got, uh, if I give you three minutes or so, Talk a little bit. I know it's the hard part. And it's so in your book, right? It's the last chapter. And in so many books yeah. that I deal with, it's the last chapter. What can we do? And at least give people a, a taste of, of where potential reforms might be. Sure. Well, and in some ways, because there's so much wrong, there's also a lot to do and a lot that can be done mm -hmm. by by listeners um, in, and and uh, and and really anyone who wants to make a difference. So, um, I mean, the, the the short answer is that that we need to dial back, uh, take down some of these shields. Um, and Congress or the Supreme Court could do a lot of this work. I don't have much expectation that they will, but that ends up meaning that there's a lot more to be done at state and local legislative um, and and uh, community. Uh, places. So here's just two quick, quick um, suggestions. Good. One yeah. is that at the state level, um, New Mexico and Colorado have both passed police reform bills that have essentially created a right to sue for violations of the state constitution without qualified immunity as a defense. 
Those are bills that have been introduced and unsuccessful in many other states, usually because union representatives um, offer these very same scare tactics um, for what what would happen if right. it was made too easily too easy to sue. So, so getting state legislatures to retake up those statutes to um, push push them forward um, and create uh, you know an alternate pathway um, to bring these claims. Because the point the point a, that I that I want yeah. to emphasize in what you said is that if you it, the whole thing we ran into at first with qualified immunity is it's the uh, federal constitution, and so the Supreme Court comes into play a lot. What you're saying is the, these bills that have succeeded in, in Colorado, New Mexico, and have failed in California, Washington, Virginia, and elsewhere um, so far, yeah. um, to align it with the state constitution. So all of everything else that we've been talking about won't come into play. Exactly. And the states really offer a, a, a clean slate to, to think in different ways about how this system should work. Um, and that's what Colorado and New Mexico have done. The skies have not fallen in either state. Um, we're going to keep studying what, what has happened there. But I, I think that they are, they are really um, bellwethers for, for us. And, and should, we should be learning a lot of lessons from them and from what they do. And, and, and um, what I like other, about that is oh, you're saying also that is something that if a listener is uh, horrified, et cetera, this is an avenue they can look around for what are the organizations in your state that are working on this and, and get to work. And is there is exactly. there kind of a place where that might be easy to find out? Well, um, uh, there is, I mean, I should, you know, the Institute for Justice, for example, and the ACLU both have state Great. state supreme state state uh actions in this in this place so i would look for the institute of justice and the aclu's very state good courts project very good and you were about um, to say and this will be kind of your closing that's fine at a local level um there is a lot that people can do within their own city councils push your city council um to make settlements and judgments come out of police departments budgets make make push your city council to audit uh, settlements and judgments in these cases and find out what's happening in these cases and how you can improve things in the future. Encourage your city government to rethink um, having police respond to people in mental health crisis right. like Tony Timpa. Um, and so there's, there's a ton that can happen at the local level. Um, and at the very, very most local level, I encourage your readers or your listeners when they get a jury summons to respond and and serve uh, uh, serve happily because having our jury system function and have people in those juries who um, who who view these cases um, with a with a neutral a truly neutral um, eye is something that those who uh, have suffered wrongdoing at the hands of police or other government officials truly need and, and often don't don't find when they when they finally get past all of these barriers and find their way to a jury. Mm -hmm. and, and I did want to point out one one noodle in, in what you said, which is that currently uh, even that that cities often um, pay the pay the bill instead of the police department. And what you're saying is if you if you look at that and change that, perhaps there's an incentive for the police department to police themselves better. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Okay. So the book is Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable. The website is joannaschwartz.net. Schwartz one word, dot net. And as she said, if you want to learn about reform efforts, the Institute of Justice 
or the ACLU can steer you in the right direction. For this conversation and many other interviews, articles, to join me in pursuit of a world that just might work, go to terrencemcnally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y.net, or a world that just might work.com. They're the same website. If you want to receive my weekly email announcement, tell me who's going to be on, what we're going to talk about, and usually 10 to 15 links to articles to flesh out the conversation. Um, email me at T-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y at, at Mac.com. Um, you can sign up at my site or email me. You can also subscribe and listen to the Freeform Podcast on Apple Podcasts and at most of those podcast sites. And you'll find years of podcasts. They're archives include Michael Lewis, Naomi Klein, Bill McKibben, Van Jones, Connie Rice, Greg Boyle, George Packer. You can also follow me on Twitter at McNally Terrence. Thanks to Keanu Williams in production, George Vassilopoulos at Progressive Voices, and most of all, you, my listeners, please share this podcast widely. And finally, thank you, Joanna Schwartz, and keep your good work. Thank you. Thanks for the great conversation.